As we continue in our studies of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we come this evening to the beginning of the last chapter of this epistle of Paul's, the sixth chapter, and the first five verses. So let me encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles as we look at verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 6. Hear the word of the true and living God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. <clears throat> Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each test or examine his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek the face of God in prayer and ask his blessing upon the ministry of this, his word. <clears throat> Let's pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we stand now on the threshold of looking at this portion of your word. We would corporately cry out to you that you would be pleased to Send this evening your Holy Spirit in copious measures upon people and preacher alike. May he come as the spirit of wisdom and illumination, the spirit of insight and understanding, that we may properly understand this passage to the end, that we may feel the weight of its truth upon our hearts, and that we in turn may be given up to its molding influence upon our thought and upon our conduct. And we ask this, Father, to your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, one of the dominant themes, if not the, well, is the dominant theme of the Apostle Paul in this epistle to the Galatians, is the theme of the gospel, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and it is on the grounds of his person and work that God justifies us. Now please notice with me, if you would, that as we come to these first five verses of Galatians chapter uh, 6, what Paul proceeds to do in the first few verses of chapter 6 is to turn from what he has described in the closing verse of, or verses of chapter 5, the negative condor to the positive condor of living, or to express it in another way. Having told us how the justified life does not live relationally to one's brothers and sisters in Christ, he tells us here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, how the justified life positively relates to one's brothers and sisters 
in Jesus Christ. Here is how spirit-led believers, here is how justified believers, here is how they live towards one another. Thus we should learn and know and grasp the reality that the evidence that we have been brought into an eternally right relationship with God through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of his finished work, and by the imputation to us of his satisfaction that he made for us, as well as his righteousness, that the evidence of that is not that we can talk about it, or that we can discuss it, or that we can debate it, or that we can defend it, but that we live out in our lives, you and I, evident, conspicuous marks that display us to be men and women who are dominated by the spirit of the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives. Now notice with me, if you would, in verses 2 through 5, and never fear, we'll come back to verse 1. Paul underscores for us in verses 2 to 5 the reciprocal love and kindness that should be the enduring feature of God's justified people. And then going back to verse 1, we're going to see he sets before us what I consider to be a rather revealing example of that reciprocal love and kindness that believers are to have towards one another. And so if we view verses 2 through 5 as underscoring the foundational principle of reciprocal love and kindness, which should be the enduring feature of the justified lives of God's people, then we see and find in verse 1 a revealing illustration or an example of that reciprocal love and kindness. So then positively, let's look in verses 2 through 5. How are Christians to regard and to treat one another? We're not to be conceited, as Paul tells us there at the close of chapter 5. We're not to provoke or to envy one another. How then are we to regard and treat one another? Well, Paul says in verse 2, bear or carry one another's burdens. And it is by such behavior, he says, that we will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, please notice the great presupposition that lies at the very heart of what Paul is saying there. He is assuming, indeed he takes it for granted, that every Christian has burdens or heavy weights, or cares that bear them down, that weigh them down, that weigh down upon our hearts and upon our lives. And he says, bear or carry one another's burdens. Each of you, he is saying, has an obligation to do this because each of us has heavy loads to bear and to carry. And these burdens, they can be many and varied. They can, some can be heavier, some can be lighter, depending on what the nature of such burdens are. They could be deeply personal. They could be profoundly familial in nature. They could stem from problems at work or struggles with temptations or crushing 
disappointments that come into our lives, or a thousand other nameless fears that turn into burdens. And the apostle assumes here from the very beginning that all of us then have burdens to bear. We live, after all, in a fallen world with other fallen creatures. We live in bodies, you and I, that still bear the remnants of indwelling sin, that reality. We live, you and I, in opposition to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there are burdens to bear, burdens to carry. And this then is what the apostle is telling us. This is how God's justified people are to regard and treat one another in this kind of reciprocal or mutual love and kindness. They carry, they bear one another's burdens. Now what Paul is saying is not that we all have burdens and we need to learn to bear them. He is saying, yes, you have burdens, but the Lord does not mean for you to bear them alone. He's making that clear. He does not mean for you to be burdened by your burdens alone. Now you may say, isn't it true? Peter tells us in his own epistle, first epistle, chapter 5 and verse 7, that we're to cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Cast your burdens on the Lord, the psalmist sings in the 52nd, 55th Psalm as well as verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. That's gloriously true. And did not our Lord Jesus Christ himself say, Come to me, all you who are, le who are burdened and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We find our Lord Jesus summoning us, indeed, inviting us who are burdened to come, to go to him, and he will give us rest. He is the great burden bearer. And yet here we read the apostle saying, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I think it's clear that he has in mind here John chapter 13 and verse 34 where he, where he writes, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How then are we to understand this if God himself in Christ is the great burden bearer of his people. What does Paul mean here? Bear or carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, I think it's probable that he is reminding us here that one of the great designed means of God in which he bears our burdens is by providing us with human friendship and companionship. One of the great means of our Heavenly Father in bearing the burdens of our children is to provide them with human friendship and companionship. You say, well, David, prove that to me 
from Holy Scripture. Well, I'll do my best. There's a wonderful illustration of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul, you may remember, in those early chapters to the Corinthians, is bearing his heart to the Corinthians. And he has told them that he has found himself at times downcast and in the depths. There in verse 5 he wrote, When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, he says, and fear within. And you can imagine the weighty burdens that must have been pressing down upon the soul of the apostle. Struggles on the outside, dread and terrors within, he says. And then in the next outbreathing, that God is pleased to give him. He writes, but God, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us. And how did God do that? By the coming of Titus. By the coming of Titus. How did God, the great comforter, comfort his apostle? By some ephemeral razzle-dazzle, if you please, of some fleeting feeling loaded with soothing goosebumps? Oh no. He comforted him by the coming of Titus. And then verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you. And read there the Corinthians. You had comforted him. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And so here's the apostle, hard pressed on every side, and he is experiencing fear and terror within, and the great burden bearer. What does he do? He sends this frail earthen vessel, Titus, to minister comfort. And encouragement at the most appropriate or opportune moment for the Apostle Paul. We are to be to one another God's ambassadors. We are to minister to one another out of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, says the Apostle, here in Galatians 6, we fulfill the law of Christ. You see, it is at just such a pivotal moment, a crossroads event, that the justified believer reveals or makes manifest his justification. Because earlier in chapter 5 at verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working or expressing itself through love, faith that works or expresses itself by love. You see, justifying faith is not a bare or a barren faith. The Apostle James testifies in his own epistle, chapter 2 and verse 17, that faith devoid of works is dead. Whatever faith it may be, it is not justifying faith if it does not evidence itself and is followed by God by good works given to us to do by the Lord. Now, it is by faith alone 
in which we are saved, or more properly, I think we should say, it is Christ alone who saves us, but faith receives from the hand of Christ the justifying righteousness that he imputes to us. But the faith that receives the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ has a transforming nature to it. The only thing that counts, says Paul, in verse 6 of chapter 5, is faith expressing itself through love. And here's one of the principal or main ways in which justifying faith expresses itself. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me ask a couple of questions. The first thing is this. Are you, am I, are you, am I, sensitive enough and spiritually caring enough to see a fellow brother, a fellow sister, carrying burdens too heavy for them to bear? Are we spiritually sensitive enough to see that? Are we enabled to see? Are we enabled to look beyond ourselves? Because it's so easy to become wrapped up in yourself with your own burdens and with your own concerns and all of that is limited by the horizons of your own world that you can see. And it's your own horizons that set the limits of how far you can see. Are we spiritually sensitive enough to see beyond ourselves, caring enough to see someone, a brother or sister, who needs me to help them bear the burden that they're carrying? But then there is another question relevant to that, and it is this. Are you willing and humble enough? And this is displaying humility. Are you willing and humble enough to let others help you bear your burdens? That's where the rubber meets the road for some of us. Now, I'm, sure I, I, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not suggesting that we spread the knowledge of our burdens near and far. That's not what I'm saying. Not at all. But our Lord himself uh, had within the twelve those three special ones who were particularly privileged to be with him at pivotal, climactic moments to share the distress and the weight of his own soul. But I fear that all too often we pass off to others this impression of self-reliance, self-sufficiency. I've got it all together. There's no chinks in my spiritual armor. I can bear it all by myself. And it's as though we've got these little pinned up notices all around us thus far and no further. I'm pretty self-sufficient, mind you. Are we humble enough to drop all that facade and bear our hearts to others. Our Lord could bear his heart. Can we not do that? And if I'm right in viewing it like this, then the point of verse 3, I think, is perhaps more easily understood. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It may very well be that Paul is saying that if you think you're so self-sufficient, 
that you don't need anyone to help carry or bear your burdens. You're strong enough. You don't need anyone else to help you. And so why should anyone else need you to help them? Well, says Paul, the truth is you're deceived because in reality, you're nothing. In reality, you're nothing. We deceive ourselves if we think we can manage just fine all on our own. But our Lord is telling us here in the clearest way possible that we can't, that we cannot. Our Lord is telling us that God, what does it do? He settles the solitary in homes. What does that mean? God says everyone needs a family. Everyone needs to be settled in the context of a home. Psalm 68 and verse 6, God settles the solitary in homes. That's why we're bound together in the family, in the household of faith. Pride and arrogance can manifest itself in any number of ways, such as to how one responds to counsel or instruction, as though some, is, some, some such thing is beneath one's dignity, as it were, to receive a word of direction that is meant or intended for the good of all. Solomon reminds us, Proverbs 16 and verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A sense of self-sufficiency is nothing but a manifestation of pride in an individual. The fact is, we may regard ourselves to be something. Paul reminds us here that we are nothing. First Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if you received it as a gift, why do you act like it wasn't a gift? That was somehow conjured up by your own strength. And what do we know, he asked, that God's Spirit has not graciously given us to know. Everything we know, dear people, is from the hand of our loving Father. And again, Paul reminds us again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, very strikingly, that even the man who thinks that he knows anything, anything, the man who thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. How humbling is that? We need one another to help us bear the burdens that weigh us down, that bring us low. We need to learn humility before God and humility before one another to say to those who care for us, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I need help. I need your help. Will you please, for Christ's sake, help me? It's what Paul is teaching us in this passage. What ministries we can have to one another 
if we had the eyes to see and the hearts to feel. And if we don't have them, then God help us to be cultivating them. Perhaps as a cure or an antidote for this wretched self-centeredness I've been talking about, this self-absorbed pride. Paul prescribes in verse 4 and 5 an impartial examination of an individual's own conduct or behavior. Look at it. Verse, I'll start with verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test or examine his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now the word for load in verse 5 is actually different from the word uh, for burdens in verse 2. And as a general rule, comparisons are odious, are they not? But I don't think the difference in those words is the thrust really underscoring that gets us to the thrust of what Paul is saying. Do you see how realistic Paul is in this passage? How aware he is of the tendency, even in the hearts of regenerate men and women, to compare themselves to one another and to think, well, you know, I'm doing better than him. I'm doing better than her. I'm managing better. Now, to be sure, we're more cautious than that. We don't express it so fastidious or as blunt as that. But that's the pride of our hearts. That's the pride of our hearts that expresses itself. And the antidote to, to that, Paul says, is that each one is to test, and that word means to make a critical examination of his own actions, of his own work, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, there are different interpretations of this, but what I think Paul is saying simply is this. Take a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror. Examine your own heart in the presence of God. Coram Deo. Examine your own heart in God's presence, and you'll discover this, that while we're to bear one another's burdens, there is one load that you and I cannot bear or share. And that is our personal responsibility before God come the day of judgment. For on that day, you cannot carry my pack and I cannot carry your pack. But on initial glance, verse 5 might appear to conflict with verse 2. But Paul's point is that our mutual responsibility to one another must be balanced by our own sense of responsibility before God. We live, you and I, in the consciousness that all of us will have to give an account to God. And that realization, Paul says, will soften and will melt our hearts toward one another. So how are justified believers to regard and to treat one another? They are to bear, they are to carry one another's burdens. They are to look out for one another. They are in obedience to the law of Christ to stoop down and get under the burden of their brother or sister with them. That's what Paul is instructing us to do. Now what I think Paul is saying in verse 1, and if I can express it like this, is to give us 
an example of how this would and should operate. What does all of this mean in practice for us? Well, verse 1 functions, I think, or illustrates for us a particular burden. Brothers, he's speaking to Christians. Is that not clear? Brothers, if anyone, it could be you, it could be me, is caught in any transgression or taken in a sin, that is, has experienced a fall, a misstep, has stumbled, not a minor fault, but something of a dramatic nature has occurred. He, he, he's not someone who is a habitual sinner. That's clear. A habitual sinner is not to be restored. He's to be converted. So it's not a habitual sinner he's talking about here. He's, he's, he's a Christian who has been caught in a sin. Notice quickly three things that Paul says here about what is, what is to be done, what is to be happened. Well, he's to be restored. Paul says you should restore him. He who has been overtaken by a sin, this crushing burden, which is bearing him down, you say, take it to the Lord. Well, take it to the Lord indeed. But that's not the emphasis Paul is stressing here. Paul is viewing it from the perspective of the covenant community. What is the responsibility of the covenant community in such an example? Well, he's to be restored. That's what Paul says. Now, it's interesting that the verb used here is also used in secular Greek as a medical term for the setting of a fracture or a dislocated limb. It's the same verb that's used in Mark 1.19 for the mending of the nets by the disciples. They're mending their nets. It's the same word. And what Paul is saying is when you see a brother being overtaken in a sin, you're not to stand by and do nothing. And you're certainly not to look on as a spectator and condemn. No, you're the restore. Not amputation, but restoration. That's what Paul is teaching in this passage. Doctors don't amputate a broken or a dislocated limb. At least I hope they don't. Martin Luther said this in his commentary on Galatians. You're to run to him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, embrace him with motherly arms. A Christian who is caught in a sin is a dislocated member of the body not an incurably diseased member of the body. He's to be restored. That's the mindset. That should be the great longing of our hearts. Secondly, who is to do this? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Who are the spiritual ones? Well, they're the very people that Paul's been speaking earlier in chapter 5, those who bear the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the spiritual ones, beginning at verse 22 of chapter 5, who evidence in their lives the fruit of the Spirit, who are not conceited, who are patient, who are kind, who are faithful, who are gentle, who have self-control, those who are meek. They're the ones to engage 
in the ministry of restoring this dislocated, broken member of the body. Now, why should it only be such Christians? Clearly, he's not speaking to all Christians here. He's speaking to the ones who are spiritual. All Christians should be spiritual, but not all have gained this level of spirituality. But we know from 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians in that book, that Paul's got other things to say about that. Why only such Christians? Well, perhaps they're the ones who immediately see that there needs to be a restoration rather than an amputation. And one of the great hallmarks of a spiritual Christian is a profound sense of one's own vulnerability. Do you sense your own vulnerability tonight? If not, then you're in a sad position. All of us are vulnerable. They're not proceeding from some holier-than-thou attitude. They're, they're not going through a theological, censorious attitude to this brother or sister. Each is going as a vulnerable, as a vulnerable Christian to minister the grace of God to another vulnerable sinner. Now notice here it said, it's not to be left to the church's elders and overseers. In other words, it's not such a sin that revolves the court of the church in this instance. And when I say the court of the church, I hope you understand, what is the court of our local church here? Well, it's the session. And so it's not something, I believe, that has gone to the level of the court of the church. It's not to be left here at this point to the elders and the overseers, although I think if we're wise, there are some times when you might want to come to an elder and say, look, here's a situ situation. I'd like to help in this. Are there things that I ought to know before I offer my help? Because sometimes I have to be honest that we as pastors and elders are privy to much that is not known, and some can jump in unwittingly. But we should note here that this ministry is not simply or exclusively to be left to the elders. It is you who are spiritual, the apostle writes, who are to do this. And clearly the emphasis is it's to be done quietly, privately if possible. Paul does not comment here what should happen if they do not listen. For then other issues have to be raised and other steps have to be taken. But then thirdly, very quickly, how is this work to be done? Verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I think the great reason why only the spiritually minded are summoned to do this is because one of the great characteristics of the spiritually minded is that they are gentle and meek and lowly in heart, like Christ himself. You see, the spirit in which we do anything is paramount. The spirit in which we do anything is first and foremost. Has that biblical truth sunk in to your soul? 
For if we speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, what are we? We are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. All noise and no genuine help. It is to be done meekly, not self-assertedly, not arrogantly, not portraying or projecting ourselves to be the measure of all things, no. But recognizing our own need and our own vulnerability before God. That's why Paul proceeds to say, keep watch on yourself, lest you also... Be tempted. Recognize the reality that you are vulnerable. You are susceptible to a transgression. And that you could as easily be overtaken with sin as your brother who has stumbled has been. But nor must we think here that meekness and gentleness means that we are to be mealy-mouthed in doing it. Recall how when David was overtaken in his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And God sends Nathan the prophet. You know the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And Nathan says to the king, I don't know how he said it, but he had the guts to say it. He looked at David and said, You are the man. You are the man. That's not milly mouth. I don't think it was done in an arrogant way. There may well be the need for clarity and confrontation, but there will be that spirit of gentleness through it all. I think that's clear. Paul or or King David recognized that Nathan was not censoriously or arrogantly confronting him with his sin, that he was a meek-spirited brother who was confronting David with God's truth. I think John Calvin expressed it well. He said, whenever we have occasion to pronounce censor or criticize or confront, he says, let us begin with ourselves and remembering our own weakness, let us be indulgent or restrained with others. Here's how justified sinners are to live. The proof of your justification, again, is not that you can debate it, define it, defend it, but that you treat others as mercifully as God in Christ has treated you. That's what we're called to do. Of course, we're to understand the great doctrine of justification. We need to learn to glory in it, to build our lives upon it. But recognize that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now what kind of lives do you and I live in this world? What evidence do our lives give that God's justifying grace has come to us in the gospel? What evidence is there that we care enough for one another to bear one another's burdens, to get under the load with some brother or sister, however inconvenient it may be. Learning to see beyond our own little horizons, if I may put it like that. It strikes me more and more, and I have to say, the the longer I'm a Christian, to discover or define how the scriptures seek to evidence 
the working of God's saving lives is seen in the context of relations with other people. How we relate to one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. That you seek to care for one another. That you should seek to restore one another. That you bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Is that, has that dynamic, has it captured and captivated our hearts? Is that the reality that prevails in Christ's church here? That we're indeed a family. Learning slowly perhaps at times, but nonetheless learning. Painfully perhaps at times, but nonetheless learning. Treating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not dealing with one another hard-heartedly, but treating one another as God in Christ has treated us. That's how justifying righteousness evidences itself in our lives. Let's 